What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Welcome to episode 88 of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Paul Shapiro, the CEO of the Better Meat Co., on the future of food sustainability through technology and cellular agriculture. We have uh, our first sponsor this week, which is awesome. So I want to thank Mark and the team at Moving Worlds. He's going to say a couple words here, and then we'll get into the interview with Paul of Better Meat Co. Hope everybody's doing well, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Hi, cause artist. This is Mark Orshevsky, CEO of Moving Worlds. We are looking for working professionals interested in making a bigger impact with their careers. Our Moving Worlds Institute Fellowship Program is accepting applications this month. Learn more at mwi.movingworlds.org and see how we can help you build the skills, network, and insights to make a lasting impact with your job that will help us all build back better. Our website again is mwi.movingworlds.org. O-R-G, Moving Worlds Institute, mwi.movingworlds.org. So usually how I like to, to start these conversations is, is really about an individual's journey. Uh, I think it's uh, the path people take to start stuff that they're going to work on for, you know, a lot of time in their life. You know, usually when I speak to, to founders and, and CEOs, they're working on something that they're going to be a part of for, for a decade, right? A couple of decades, maybe even their life's work. So take us take us down the path of, of, of how you got to start uh, Better Miko. Yeah, Grant. Sure. Well, great to be with you. Nice to be talking with you. And I uh, appreciate that. So, you know, my whole life, I have been concerned about animals. I have always been an animal lover. I grew up with dogs and uh, really <laughs> viewed them more like my siblings uh, than I did as like pieces of property. As I became a teenager, I started to recognize just how poorly we actually treat animals, especially the animals who we raise for food. And it's not just that we torment them in ways that few people even wanna hear about, let alone would they wanna witness it, but raising animals for food just takes a lot of resources, a lot of land, a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and so on. And when you compare that to what it takes to produce plant protein, it's just a dramatic disparity. Far, far lower environmental footprint, far lower animal cruelty footprint to produce plant protein than to produce animal protein. There's a problem though. That problem is that meat demand keeps going up that people are eating more and more meat, even as we learn more and more about how unsustainable uh, these skyrocketing rates of meat consumption are. And so my career has really been devoted to trying to figure out ways that we are able to satiate humanity's demand for protein without destroying the planet, animals, and ourselves in the process. So to answer your question directly, Grant, I have uh, I, I worked for a couple of decades in the nonprofit space, lobbying for better agricultural sustainability laws. And then I wrote a book called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And in the book Clean Meat, I really explore the premise that rather than people changing their behavior based on humane sentiment for animals or environmental concern, technologies that can make animal-free alternatives mainstream by making them cheaper and better and so on are more likely to actually solve the problem. And so after writing the book, I decided that I would, uh, instead of just writing about the people who I thought would invent the technology that could help to save the world, I'd become one of them myself. And so I co-founded a company called The Better Meat Co. We're a startup that's based in Sacramento, California, and we're an alternative protein company, pioneering new technologies to produce protein to sustainably feed humanity into the future. Talk about alternative protein, uh, because I think a lot of us are seeing these different sort of 
beyond meat possible foods sort of come to to the mainstream a little bit through partnerships with you know burger king and mcdonald's and and you see sort of this plant-based meat it's really kind of like lab grown meat to a certain extent but what i guess what is alternative protein i guess what is what is the difference between you know better meat code than you know than beyond meat or impossible foods well beyond and impossible are really impressive companies they're a lot older than we are each of them is about a decade or so old whereas we are less than three years old as the time we're recording this here in december 2020 but we're an ingredients company so we sell b2b we don't have a brand that you're going to find on a store shelf we sell ingredients to other companies for them to make their products better so the better meat co creates two categories of products One are meat enhancers, products that companies can use to blend into their meat Hmm. to lower the environmental footprint of their meat while also making their meat tastier, better texture, and healthier for the consumer. So less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, and so on. Then we also produce ingredients that you can utilize as the basis of a fully plant-based meat as well. So that's a, a primary difference between us and those other companies is that we are more like an Intel inside, right? Like we're a technology that companies can put into their food products as opposed to creating our own brand that you're gonna buy in the supermarket. Interesting. And that's an approach that I haven't quite seen yet. Is that is that sort of a an innovative approach that you you've always wanted to do that, or did you did you wanted to start a, a consumer brand and then segue to B two B, or is it always sort of we want to go oh. directly to to the to the companies and help them rather than create our own brand? Yeah, I mean, so far, Grant, we've always wanted to be a B two B company. We've thought that we can have a bigger impact by working with yeah. the biggest players rather than competing against them. So I have no problem with you know, companies that want to create their own brand and compete against meat and try to get people to switch from meat to their products. That's Mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, But at the same time, you know, we can have a really big impact by working with the biggest players to end up creating better food products for them. It's almost like if you think about with cars, Mm -hmm. you know, right now you have a Tesla, which is a a very high-end expensive product. It's entirely electric and it competes against the, you know, hopefully people buying gas cars are going to switch to their electric car. That's great. But there's a reason why electric vehicles are still less than 1% of the vehicle market. And that's because they're really expensive. Well, the same is so for companies like the ones that you were just mentioning, their products are sold not for like 30 or 40% higher than the cost of beef. They're sold at like 300 or 400% (laughs) the cost of commodity beef. And what we do would be more analogous to creating a technology that allows the Fords and the GMs to improve their fuel efficiency. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Purdue Farms, the major chicken giant, uses our ingredients to do a product that's called Purdue Chicken Plus. This is a 50% blend of chicken, 50% plant. And the so products in over seven... Like a yeah, hybrid. that's exactly right. It is a hybrid. It's 50-50. And it's in over 7,000 supermarkets and it's doing really well. Um, the product, in fact, was named by the Food Network as the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America. So think about that. The best tasting frozen chicken nugget is only 50% chicken. That's mm. pretty remarkable when you consider how much land could be saved if all chicken nuggets were only 50% chicken. And in fact, Purdue has now come out and said that 20% of all of their nugget sales are this hybridized product now. So we have made a huge impact by helping Purdue to do better than if we had created some new product to try to compete against Purdue. And not all not all of it would be 50, 50 like some companies might say, hey, we want to do uh, 30% of the hybrid yeah. model, right? Or And so it's up to them. They just 
purchase the ingredients from you and then they can they can use it however they want in their in their sort of supply chain and, and sort of the system that they have um, yeah that's exactly right grant and we work with them to help them formulate with our ingredients right. so they can know what best applications there are and what percentage of inclusion rate would be best for that but yeah what you're saying is exactly right what are some of the the impact numbers if you have some kind of <laughs> off the top mm -hmm. of your head I hate to put you on the spot but sort of like what is the sure. the environmental impact right uh, from a positive point of view that yeah scale this would actually do yeah well i mean the reality is is that it's vast amounts of water land and energy saved that's uh, and, and not to mention the animal welfare mm -hmm. impact uh, which i should mention so you know when you think about um animal protein like just think about a, a one chicken mm -hmm. to raise one chicken you need generally speaking about a thousand gallons of water now it's not because the chicken is so thirsty but it's because that chicken is consuming vast amounts of crops that are uh, thirsty crops and that's just a lot of water for that i mean one egg is generally about 50 gallons of water to produce mm -hmm. a single egg and so plant proteins just have a much much lower footprint much lower footprint and so it, you know, I hope that people would switch from animal proteins to plant proteins, but at the same time, I recognize that many people want to eat meat. And right. if we can help uh, the meat companies lower their footprint by blending plant protein into their animal protein, they can reduce their water footprint, their land footprint, their animal welfare footprint, and more. So that's the real, uh, that's the real benefit of what we're doing. And when you first go back to a little bit, when, when we first started, what were some of the, was there a big issue? issue that you were you were trying to to solve like was there was it the animal first was it the environment because I, I think it, i guess when you're pitching the product to these you know massive companies what do they want to hear right from you right you're you're saving <laughs> yeah. you're saving you know you're still say, saving them money i would assume would be one of the pitches right that you could save them money and and or save them energy and and could also save them money by saving energy and saving land and and sort of I guess what was the initial talks you know walking into these big corporations trying to pitch you know this hybrid sort of meat bottle yeah great question so I mean look our motivation is a desire to reduce humanity's footprint on the planet that's our goal but we realize that's not necessarily our customer's goal our customer right. may have goals like for example cost savings they may have goals to have a healthier product so they can have less saturated fat or less cholesterol or fewer calories or more fiber uh, maybe they want to make a claim regarding vegetable nutrition in the product so if you look at the uh, purdue chicken plus nuggets that i was mentioning they're marketed as uh, having a quarter cup of vegetables per serving of chicken nuggets so can't get your kids to eat their veggies well give them <laughs> these nuggets and they're getting their veggies so there's lots of different ways to think about why it's an attractive product where the key is that we are making their product actually better we are enhancing their product mm -hmm. that a solely meat product is inferior to a product that is enhanced with plant protein because you can essentially anything that is like a hamburger, right? Through that hamburger, you could through that patty, so to speak, you could have a couple of vegetables in that patty. So while you're eating a burger, you're also eating vegetables at the same time. Is that kind of the... Yeah, that's part of it. But yeah, and don't think about it so much as like you're going to bite into a burger and see chunks of broccoli Of course or not. Cheese. Of course yeah, not. Right. You're no, going to no, have not. the same experience. But that's the beauty. You don't even too, notice right? it though, right? That's yes. the beauty is that you don't even notice that you're eating healthier, <laughs> right? Right. If anything, you're going to actually think that it's better. Mm -hmm. So like we improve the taste and texture of meat so that the consumer ends up thinking, 
hey, this is an even better product. And it's healthier, right? So let's talk a little bit about the the ingredients that are that's in this sort of this hybrid model. Like sure. what what are you pro- what is the ingredients that you are providing, you know, to these to these meat producers? Is it just is it just vegetables or is it all kind of different things that can be put into into to meat or yeah, chicken? We, chicken that's great. Yeah, we produce a form we produce formulas that are allergen free, clean label and all natural. They're combinations of plant-based proteins, fibers, fats, and flavors. And they're processed in a unique way that enables them to seamlessly blend directly into animal meat so that the consumer cannot tell the difference, even at a pretty high inclusion rate, like up to a third, or in some cases, even a half of the product. So when we add our product to the meat, we're going to add fiber to it. Now, keep in mind, you know, meat has no fiber whatsoever. And, you know, people in America are obsessed with protein. We see huge claims on product packages about how many grams of protein are in a product. But, you know, I can assure you that pretty much nobody listening to this podcast is protein deficient or probably has ever met a person in his or her life who is protein deficient. It's just virtually non-existent in America and in the developed world. But what's rampant is fiber deficiency. Uh, More than 90% of Americans are fiber deficient. We don't eat enough fiber and the consequences from a public health perspective are dramatic. It's not just constipation, it's colon cancer and so many other problems that are associated with a fiber deficient diet. And the chances are that nearly every person listening to this podcast is fiber deficient. We're not eating enough fiber and meat doesn't have any. So if people Mm. want to eat meat, why not put more fiber into the meat? And that's part of what we're accomplishing. So yes, we're going to cut down on the things you don't want, like cholesterol and saturated Mm -hmm. fat, but we're also going to add in things that you do want, like fiber. So we can take a product that you already like, meat, and make it even better. So (laughs) I want to ask this, this is probably a weird question, but I, I, so we talked about like chicken and beef, but could we have this sort of hybrid model with, let's say, like candy bars, right? Or like mm. cereal or other food items that are traditionally unhealthy for, you know, kids sort of get get fed these sort of the, these items growing up, right? Or, or people, you know, maybe living below the poverty line who can't really afford maybe healthy eating constantly. Is there a way we can inject a healthy lifestyle into people who, you know, just normally, you know, don't go that don't go that route? Yeah, I love where you're going with this, Grant. It's a strategy that's often referred to as stealth health. Mm. And so, you know, the soup manufacturers did this, like the canned yeah. soup manufacturers. For years, they reduced sodium by about 5% per year, but they never labeled it. I mean, it's labeled, of course, on the nutrition facts, but not on the right. front of the package. It's not marketed as right. a reduced sodium product. And because when people hear reduced sodium, they think reduced flavor, right? But if you just gradually turn down the sodium, you change people's power such that they don't expect something to be so Mm. salty anymore. And you get to a point where the new normal is to have a lower sodium product. And that can really, you know, do wonders for reducing rates of hypertension in the country. And so, yes, I could easily see doing things like that. Um, so as an example, you mentioned cereals. Well, you know, a lot of cereals, especially kids' cereals, but a lot of adult cereals are just sure. packed with sugar, yeah, right? It's crazy. It's tons of sugar. It's unbelievable. Um, but what if, you know, you could blend it so that you use maybe half the sugar and half stevia as an example, just, you know, just to 
throw out one idea. So you would still get that sugar, but you also get some sweetness from something that's healthier and doesn't cause the glycemic impact that, that cane sugar does. There's a, a lot of ways that you can do that type of a hybridization, but I love where you're going with that. And I hope somebody will come up with some solution like that for uh, for the cereal business and, and others too. <laughs> yeah, that, that, would be, that would be pretty neat. So what's, uh, what's sort of the, the landscape with, uh, obviously there's the pandemic is still sort of sort of happening and how has that transition been like this year for you because it sounds like things are going well and then all of a sudden you're you're sort of just gut punched with something that is uh gonna is upending a lot of companies and a lot of businesses a lot of sectors has you have you seen that impact with with sort of food distribution or more people willing to you know essentially invest in a new sort of product for their business because of sort of the uncertainty? Yeah, it's definitely been a gut punch grant. You're correct to call it that. The pandemic has harmed us in a number of ways, uh, innumerable actually. Uh, so I want to like filibuster our time here by sure. counting all of yeah, them. Yeah. But I'll just say one, which is that our products depend on companies reformulating their products with our ingredients. Mm -hmm. When R&D staff are not even in the office, let alone doing any new innovation, that becomes very difficult. And so even under normal times, uh, having a large company reformulate their products is a very lengthy process. But in pandemic times, it just puts it on super slow speed. And it is definitely difficult for a startup that is counting on revenue to extend its runway to end up having uh, these types of um, deals take much longer than anticipated. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back real quick to to how the supply chain works in the distribution of, you know, mass meat and mass chicken at scale. So you're talking with the, the companies that would supply, let's say, like a Burger King, like a McDonald's, like a Wendy's or something mm -hmm. like that. Because that to me is the game changer where we can obviously have more healthy food accessible to much more uh, Americans. And we'll just talk about America just because that's that's where we are and where we live and, and, and where sort of these mass fast food sort of casual places live the most. So is that, I just just so we have the ecosystem correct, right? Like you would be talking to them that would then distribute to these fast food companies. I'm trying to figure out a way where we get, you know, healthier, more affordable foods into, you know, this this fast food ecosystem. Because that, that would obviously be a, a pretty big game changer. It would be a huge game changer. And the success of companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat by getting into the Burger Kings and the Carl's Juniors of the world is, it really can't be understated. Uh, that's mm -hmm. really important. At the same time, we have to remember these products are still more expensive. And right. the, the key is going to be to get the products to be cheaper. So if you think about it, like, you know, we used to hunt whales to light our homes. Like whale oil was a huge, huge mm. part of our economy 150 years ago. Then kerosene was invented. And kerosene was a cheaper, more efficient, cleaner way to light our homes than whale oil. And it decimated the whaling industry and it liberated whales from harpoons. The primary reason we stopped whaling wasn't because we were concerned about whales. It was because we had a cheaper, better alternative to whale oil. Mm -hmm. So, and there's numerous examples that are like that, right? So then the question becomes like, how are we going to displace factory farming of animals with something that is better? And the answer is, it's got to be cheaper. It just right. has to be cheaper. And right now it isn't. So there are very compelling reasons to eat a plant-based diet. It's better for you. It's better for the planet. It's better for animals. But most people do not make their food purchasing decisions based on those three criteria. Most people don't make food purchasing decisions based on animal welfare or the environment or often even their health. Usually 
taste is king, price is queen, and it has to also be convenient, meaning they have to be at the places where they're already going, fast food companies, Walmart, and so on. And so the plant-based meat movement is now starting to compete on taste where the products in in recent years have gotten much, much more meat-like. It's starting to compete on convenience, meaning it's in the fast food companies and it's in the meat aisle of supermarkets where right. people actually go to buy meat, but it's not yet competing on price. And until it does, mm-hmm. it's going to remain as alt protein. Like if we wanted to right. move from alt protein to mainstream protein, it has to get actually cheaper. Just in the same way that you're not going to see renewable energy actually become the mainstream energy source for our nation until it's cheaper than fossil fuels. I don't think that we're going to see plant-based meat uh, become mainstream in the way that it needs to be to make a dent in the problem until it's cheaper. Yeah, it's sort of the the issue that I think the the plastic sort of not industry, but the plastic movement of, of less plastic, right? And, and how do we how do we create a world where maybe it's not plastic free, right? I mean, that's that's sort of a rainbow land type of thing. Like it's very difficult to do that because there's nothing, like you said, to really replace it right now at a mass scale where you know if you you you're then not paying five dollars for a diet coke, right? I mean it's th- mm-hmm. there's we have to have the alternatives and maybe the technology to catch up to where we can create something that is, you know, considerably on par with, with plastic, then we can start to really eliminate plastic from our society somehow, right, eventually down the road. And I think that's the, the same idea is sort of how do we, we can't go from just A to Z so quickly, there's these different steps we have to take, whether it's energy, whether it's meat, anything around around food or, or plastics, there's this sort of process of, of learning and technology to catch up and, and data to get back before we can actually transition to, you know, this a much more utopia sort of, sort of world or economy that we want to see. It's just, it just takes time, right? That That's all it's going to happen. I think it just takes time. Yeah, I think you're right, Grant. You know, the world does not work in such a way that major leaps occur overnight. Usually to get from A to Z, you have to go through 24 other letters first. <laughs> and, you know, I am a, I'm a big believer in running analogies since I do a lot of running myself. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, Every race, it's just one step at a time. You can't skip the steps, right? You're not going to go from mile one to mile three. You have to actually run all those thousands of steps that it takes to get from one to three. And that's the same with life and with social change often. And it just takes, it takes some time. My concern though, is that in the case of things, for example, like plastic or like climate change, that time's running out. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the world is literally on fire right now as we speak. I mean, I'm sitting here in December in California and we still have wildfires in December. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And my concern is, you know, can we actually turn this thing around in time? Because humanity is waging a war on the rest of the planet. It's an unprovoked war. We don't want to be doing it, but our actions lead it to be basically be a war. We're causing massive extinctions. We're changing so much about the planet in the oceans, on land, in the air. And we need new technologies that are going to dramatically reduce our footprint on the planet. And that's going to start, yes, with energy, but also with clean food as well. And I, when I say clean food, I mean animal-free food that will not only re- reduce our reliance on the exploitation of animals for food, but will reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions our agricultural sector is emitting, reduce the amount of land needed to farm for to feed all these animals and more. So we talk about animal-free you know, food, right? But right now, I mean, your company can only exist with animals though, right? Like the hybrid model <laughs> of, 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 of using it. So like, are you, when you talk to 
and companies though like i don't think they want to hear that right they want to hear like fully non-animal foods right so that's a i would say imagine that's well, a tough conversation maybe i mean i'm very open about what our goals are but that doesn't necessarily mean that their goals must perfectly align with ours in the long term mm -hmm. uh, but i do think a lot of meat companies are starting to view themselves not necessarily as meat companies but as protein companies that mm. you know consumers mm -hmm. are looking for products from them and in the same way that you can envision how a company let's say like bp could maybe one day instead of being a gas company could be let's say a renewable energy company they're just selling energy right like we don't care that our that our cars are fueled by an internal combustion engine if it was cheaper to fuel to move our cars around with electricity we would be happy to do it most people don't eat meat because animals were raised and slaughtered for it they eat mm. meat in spite of that fact mm -hmm. um and so you know when you turn the light on in your room you probably don't you're not thinking about whether that energy is coming from fossil fuels or from renewable energy. But if it was cheaper to have renewable, you'd be thrilled. I think the same is true when it comes to animal produced food versus plant produced food. People want something that tastes good, is satiating, is healthy and nutritious for them, and is safe to eat. And if we can produce the same foods from plants uh, with a much lower footprint, I think that people will be quite pleased to have those. Uh, another, I know we, we talked a little bit about chicken and meat and, and sort of other you know, food sectors. What about seafood? That's sort of a, a love that I have growing up in, in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we ate yeah. seafood, right? And I, and I still like shrimp po'boys are like my favorite thing to this day. Um, <laughs> but I am aware that, you know, overfishing is a big problem, right? And I, I think there's a lot of microplastics in the fish and seafood that we eat because of all the, the, the plastic being dumped in our ocean. So that's a serious, serious issue as well. Is there a way to sort of hybrid model the the seafood industry right where we can just like we want to eat less animals or or meat from from cows let's just say or, or chickens right try to wean our way off of that is it this is it the same dynamic with with fish or seafood is that possible to sort of had that same ideology in that food sector as well? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, there's a number of startups that are focused just on that problem. So there are some plant-based seafood companies like mm. Good Catch, but then there's also companies that are growing actual fish meat from fish cells. So for example, there's a company called Blue Nalu, and they're making actual fish. It's not an alternative to fish. It's not a substitute for fish. It's real fish grown from fish cells without the need to actually catch fish from the ocean or to aquaculture fish. They're just growing them via what's called cellular agriculture. Hmm. And so that way, you not only don't have the problem of overfishing, you also have no microplastics. Um, right. So you don't have to worry about microplastics. You don't have to worry about mercury. You don't have to worry about uh, antibiotics that are used in aquaculture. You can just grow pure fish meat that people want to eat without having so many of the negative consequences associated with it. But I will say the Better Meat Code does offer really good alternative seafood products as well uh, for the enhancement. So for example, you can make oh. crab cakes and bl blend them with our products. We have uh, products that work really well also in salmon. Uh, so we do the whole range. We offer products from beef enhancers to pork, chicken, turkey, fish, crab, et cetera. Do you foresee down the down the road maybe like perhaps selling well one is it legal could you even sell like the ingredients direct to consumer where families can cook with it right so, so to speak yeah. right or is it or is it how, how it's structured now i mean there's a lot of legal hurdles when you sell 
food items to direct consumer versus mm -hmm. you know through other means so yeah. i guess I, I usually like to end a little bit on the future so let's let's try to go down the future path here and, and talk about right. different options well yeah sure so first uh maybe is the answer to your question we we've thought about it we're not sure what we'll do in the future you know companies sometimes pivot maybe we'll do that but right now we're very content being a b2b ingredients company but more importantly to your question grant about the future Imagine a time, for example, when before, or so after cows had been domesticated, so we had milk, mm -hmm. but before cheese had been invented, nobody had figured out how to make milk curdle and to make cheese. No one at that time had ever dreamt about Gouda or Brie or cheddar or Swiss. They never even fantasized about it, right? Never thought about it because it didn't exist. Yet when cheese was invented and milk curdling came into, into vogue, it opened up an entirely novel culinary world to humanity that now there are hundreds of different cheeses that people regularly enjoy. And in fact, many people I would say are addicted to it. Right. Um, <laughs> but now imagine that through the power of cellular agriculture or through the power of microbial fermentation, we can have something as revolutionary as let's say cheese curdling that invents an entire new category of food. So that entirely novel culinary experiences that we've never fantasized about ourselves might become possible in the future. So as an example, um, imagine that instead of you go to your friend's house right now and let's say they have a bread maker or an ice cream maker on their kitchen counter. It's kind of right. cool, but it's not really remarkable, right? But what right. if they had a meat maker? Hmm. What if they had a meat maker hmm. where they were just ordering little tea bags full of stem cells and they dropped them in and you could grow meat right there on your kitchen counter? Wouldn't that yeah. be cool? Holy crap. Yeah. Or what, what if you went to a restaurant and they had the most artisanal local meat you could imagine, a pig who, let's say, lives out back in a field behind the restaurant <laughs> and they've taken a cell, a microscopic cell right. from that pig. And they're brewing right on the premises in a meat maker that pig sells into sausages that you can order and you can go and tip your hat to the pig who's alive and well and eat the sausage right there. You know, those are the type of things that I love to fantasize about because yeah. I think that maybe in the future they'll be possible. So you said you said a, a really interesting term is uh, cellular agriculture, right? Can you talk a little bit more about about that? Like one, obviously, like to all to to layman's, right? Like be what it actually is, right? And then the possibilities of it. Sure. So that's what the topic of my book, Clean Meat, is about. And in the book, Clean Meat, I write that basically, you know, the world has gone big with animal agriculture, right? We're now raising billions and billions of animals for food every year, slaughtering billions and billions of animals. But I think that in order to solve the food sustainability challenges that we face, we don't need to go big with animal agriculture. We need to go small with cellular agriculture. And mm. what that means is growing food from cells. So rather than raising an entire animal for food, you can take a tiny sesame seed sized biopsy from that animal. And within that tiny little biopsy, there are millions of cells in there. And you can put those into a cultivator outside of the animal's body. And those cells will do exactly what they would do inside of the animal's body, hmm. which is grow into actual meat. And again, this isn't a substitute for meat and it's not an alternative meat. It's not a plant-based alternative, this is real animal meat, the same meat that people eat today, except it's just grown outside of the animal's body. And so cellular agriculture is the practice of growing food products instead of from whole massive organisms like a chicken or a turkey or a pig or a cow, and instead growing it directly from their cells, which uses way less land, way less water, way fewer greenhouse gas emissions, and of course, much less animal cruelty. But it also, it also 
theoretically could eliminate the idea of sort of like Malcow disease or salmonella, right? All these sort of diseases that yeah. are possible when, you know, the food's being made or, or whatever the cow eats or the chicken eats, right? That could get in our, our supply system. So that could essentially eliminate foodborne like sort of diseases and outbreaks, right? It could certainly do a lot to reduce their risk of them. So for example, you know, right now, if you get raw meat from the supermarket, you have to treat it almost like toxic waste. You know, <laughs> you're not supposed to touch it with your hands. Right. You've got to put it in a different bag. If it right. touches your kitchen counter, you got to disinfect your kitchen counter. The reason is because there's feces on the meat. Mm -hmm. Salmonella, E. coli, Campylobacter, these are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of our meat, literally. We're right. literally cooking the crap out of the meat. And then... You think about when you're growing what's called clean meat, the reason that many people refer to it as clean meat is not just because it is like an illusion of clean energy, it's better for the planet, but it's actually literally cleaner because you don't have to worry so much about intestinal pathogens when you're not growing intestines at all. You're just growing the meat mm. that people want to eat. In fact, you're more likely to infect that meat with your hands than the meat is to infect you. Mm. So yes, you can really dramatically reduce the bacterial loads of these uh, foodborne pathogens that we're so concerned about right now on raw meat. Okay, so one of the last questions I'll have, I usually try to talk about like, all the good things, but I'm, I'm thinking about the future and, and if all goes well uh, around this sort of sector of cellular agriculture and, and plant-based and, and all these different things. But I, I also think about like the fishermen and the farmers, right? That's a yeah. lot of jobs, right? That's a lot of economic displacement. So how... When you when you speak to people like or, or farmers or, or whoever, right, like, is that sort of the reluctancy to really kind of go all in with this because that the job displacement initially will be pretty tough, right? And it'll be pretty, it, it will hurt a lot of communities because of, of sort of the innovation is right. not, it, there, there's, there, innovation is amazing and great, but it, it does leave people behind, right? It's just natural. Yeah, I agree with you. So, you know, when I remember when one hour photo came out. And I was so thrilled. I couldn't believe that we're going to get our photos in an hour. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> now, of course, if it took one minute, you'd be outraged, right? Imagine if it took a minute to get a photo. We'd be so right. upset. We'd be throwing yeah, our phones yeah. in the trash. But what digital film meant was that everybody who worked at those one-hour Photoshops basically lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because, I mean, of course, we still have some of them around still, but very few. We don't have a lot right. of blockbuster videos. We don't have blockbuster video anymore because we're all streaming on Netflix. Yeah. All the people who worked at Blockbuster lost their jobs. When people started moving Away from tobacco people growing tobacco ended up you know not having uh, such mm -hmm. a good time with it because their crop was no longer being purchased as much so right. there's a natural move in the economy to shift from one thing to another but people still need to eat the fact is like the mm -hmm. cells themselves still have to eat so you still need to grow crops mm. to feed the cells and so you know it's just that the jobs move around so for example when whaling ended many of the people who were involved in the whaleboat industry shifted to be getting involved in the kerosene industry. Hmm. Uh, we still needed to light our homes, but it was just being done in a different way. And so there will still be agricultural jobs. They just will be in different parts of the agricultural economy. And it may require retraining in the same way that whalers became kerosene manufacturers, mm -hmm. or in the same way, for example, that after the invention of cars, people growing oats were very down on their luck because the biggest consumer of oats horses were no longer around, you know, like the oat market after cars invention, the oat market in the United States crashed, but they grew other things. So there's lots of different ways of the economy changes. And you, we have to recognize that agriculture today is not practiced as it was 20 years ago. And 20 years from now, it will not be practiced in the same way as it is today. There will be changes 
And the companies that are innovative, that are forward thinking, that embrace the type of innovation that we're talking about on, on this conversation today, those are gonna be the winners. Those are gonna be the forward thinking companies that actually win. The companies that stick their head in the sand and try to maintain a, stat, a status quo, those are gonna be the ones that are gonna have a real problem and they're gonna end up like Kodak because Kodak didn't embrace digital and mm -hmm. we know what happened, they declared bankruptcy. Whereas mm -hmm. their biggest competitor in the print film market was Canon. Canon embraced digital even though they knew that it would cannibalize their current business model. And now today they're the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. So mm -hmm. companies want to envy, want to um, emulate the the Canon model rather than the Kodak model, and those are going to be the winners in tomorrow's marketplace. Amazing. Last question I have is, uh, I know it's tough. It'd be tough to answer this one, but I, I like to to look at, at down the road a little bit. So maybe within you know three to five years, what do you what do you hope to see in the industry specifically? You know, Better Meat Co. and, and sort of the evolution of you know hybrid, plant based, cellular agriculture. Like three to five years, what it, what would that bring? Because I think a lot of stuff we talk about, you know, like uh, autonomous cars, right? We've been here for so long; it's still so far away from like everyday thing but like in the next yeah. three to five years what like innovations can we actually expect right out of consumer yeah well i think that uh clean meat or meat grown from animal cells will be on the market and people will be enjoying it that'll be one but more mm -hmm. importantly and broadly grant right now when people think about protein oftentimes they think about a hunk of flesh that came from a once living animal's body in yep. the future, we'll have a far more diverse portfolio of proteins that come to mind. We're going to think, yes, there'll still be animal protein, but there'll also be plant proteins. People will think about microbial proteins. People will think about proteins grown from animal cells. People will think about animal plant hybrid proteins. So I just think in the future, protein is going to be far more diverse and hmm. far more interesting than what it is today. Here's a freaky question. <laughs> the idea of the cellular part, right, where we can take a cell from a cow, right? take a cell from a chicken or whatever could we essentially do the same thing with like lions <laughs> or like tigers and then actually you could like ethically like try out these animals that is yeah. not ethical right now <laughs> yeah so first of all the short answer is yes but the longer answer is it's already being done uh, one 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 startup called Vow in Australia has already made uh, has already grown kangaroo meat from cells. Hmm. A startup in a startup in California called Geltor has actually grown mastodon gelatin. Now keep in mind mastodons oh. are extinct. This is the elephant-like oh. animal that went extinct thousands of years ago. Well, we, there are still some of their bodies in like icy graves and we've sequenced their genome. And Geltor actually made mastodon gelatin and made gummy candies and ate them. This is the first time a human has eaten mastodon <laughs> protein in thousands and thousands of years. And they did it. So, you know, uh, there's gonna, it'll be a brave new world of protein where it's not just endangered species you can eat, but maybe even extinct species. Unbelievable, it's so weird. It's so weird to think about. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul. Amazing conversation, yeah. amazing topic. I appreciate appreciate all the work. I, I appreciate the time and effort that goes into it because obviously it's a it's a massive environmental challenge. Uh, it's also yeah. a massive environmental health. I mean, just a health human health challenge as well as environmental. But uh, amazing work. Like just just keep grinding. Hopefully, we us as consumers will adopt this more rapidly um, as 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 more data comes out and more products are available. Um, so best of luck in 2021 and uh, thanks for taking the time. You too, Grant. I hope you have a good time in the Netherlands and from California, I'm giving you a virtual fist bump. Absolutely. Thank you so much, man.